everybody. And welcome to That's Life, the show where we are not going to be wearing eye makeup until the winter, because frankly, these allergies and itchy eyes are making me nuts. Good morning, folks, and thanks for listening. No, ladder, 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 ladder. Naomi must have been sitting here. There we go. Now I can hear myself. Good morning, folks. Thanks for listening. I'm Miriam L. Wallach, blogger, writer, general manager here at the Nahum Siegel Network. You can find me here every Thursday at 10 a.m. right after Charlie and right before Nahum's live lunch as I hope to bring you a little entertainment, a little news, and a little relief that the life you are leading is not nearly as wacky as mine, coming to you from the home of the Nachum Siegel Network on the beautiful Lower East Side. And I say that tongue-in-cheek because of Rami. Week four. Week four that Charlie Harari has made it rain. What is going on? And this time, he didn't even stick around for it. <laughs> yeah, nice. Charlie's been in Los Angeles. It's really <laughs> great for him, though there was a heat wave there last weekend, but I don't think it really matters. It is week four in a row that on a Thursday here in New York... It is raining, and uh, I'm beginning to think that God is trying to tell me something, or somebody's trying to tell me something. I think God has better things to do at this time than send me messages through rain. But uh, either way, this is uh, it's a little bit out of control. If you're a new listener to the show, thank you for taking a break from your day to tune in. And if you're a returning listener, thanks, as always, for making us part of your day. If Miriam L. Wallach once a week is just not enough for you, do what David Wiseman did. You can find me on Facebook. Send me an invite on LinkedIn. You can also shoot me an email. Miriam at NahumSiegel.com. I will not respond to you during the show. Not being rude, just being honest, but I will make sure to get back to you afterwards. Please also follow us on Twitter, NahumSiegelNet, and or you can also follow me on Twitter, Miriam L. Wallach. Both are all one word. By the way, a shout-out to Michael Goldberg. He is listening in Hoshea, Israel. Uh, thank you, Michael, for tuning in. And your sister says hi. Shout-out to all of the members as well of the Cantor and Cinnamon families. It was it was an incredible wedding on Sunday. I know I've spoken about it on the air. Um, and if you haven't checked out my Facebook page and all the different posts and all the different pictures, I highly recommend that you do because even if you weren't there and even if you don't know who the Hassan and Kala were, I promise you, you will feel the excitement and the fun and the joy of that simcha just by looking at the pictures. It was an extraordinary night, and uh, mazel tov to everyone. Let's go to our favorite segment, actually. Oh, wow, okay, fine. No problem, no problem. Let's get a, um, let's go to the, let's go to the national holidays. Oh, Rami, can you do me a favor, actually? Um, this is going to sound ridiculous, but my fortune cookie is not on the desk. Can you do me a favor and grab one? I know, they're in the box <laughs> underneath the other desk. I'm not opening the Twix yet. By the way, for those of you who are wondering, as Michael Chill just wondered on Facebook, what was going on with the picture I just posted under that desk in the front, under the computer, there's a huge box sent to me by L.E.Y. Cats of Chopsticks and Teaneck. You really can't miss it. Did you find it? Amazing. Thank you. For those of you who are wondering what the picture on Facebook was all about, about the Hershey bar and the Zatar seasoning and the Himalayan sea salt, in a couple of minutes... Um, Ika Cohn from Ika Chocolates in Tel Aviv is going to join us on the air. She recently won an international chocolate competition on behalf of Israel coming in with the gold medal. And her combination of Zatar chocolate was what did it for the judges. And so we're going to do a little taste test here, though I would not want to, um, I would not want to offend her by equating Hershey chocolate with hers. But anyway, let's do, let's do the fortune cookies. By the way, Avram, you brought me twins here. Talk about uh, no um, product control. Is that good luck? Um, I don't know because one of them is broken. So actually it gives me the heebies a little bit. Hold on one second. Let's do this one. I had a great fortune yesterday. What are you making fun of me for? I had a great fortune yesterday. We had Chinese food at the Wallachs. Uh, thank you, Chosen Island. And I posted that that uh, that fortune cookie, that fortune. Hold on one second. This one says, statistics are no substitute for judgment. 
That's true because I failed statistics and my judgment's pretty good. So we're going on with that. Anyway, today's um, today's national holidays, folks. It's Canadian Immigrants Day. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Something about that. I don't know why we're celebrating that in the United States. I have Canadian citizenship. You do? Yeah, yeah. Through my mom. She had a green card, etc. Are you serious? Yeah, her family went to Canada after You're the war. You're a hoser? No, I, I was born here. I just have dual citizenship. I don't even... I'm not familiar with that term. <laughs> really? Oh, so you know nothing. Do you know what poutine is? Yes. Okay. And I have to tell you, I've tried the kosher version of it, and I hope the not kosher version is, is better. Is a lot better, yeah. Because you can't do the gravy. The It's just like, right. yeah, it's not. Yeah, I don't understand it. I mean, personally, I don't understand it at all because, look, what do you need to do that to french fries for? No, I could see it like if you had good meat gravy, but then you can't have the cheese. So it just doesn't... Uh... Right. And by the way, there was a whole article in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago, like a full page, I think it was in the travel section, about poutine and what makes good poutine. It's not even cheese. It's cheese curds. It's like cheese buds. Yeah. It. I mean, if I was turned off, if I wasn't turned <laughs> off of it before, I certainly was then. It's also International Day for Biological Diversity. Yeah, I don't know how you celebrate that. National Maritime Day. It's Fleet Week here in New York. And uh, last year we lost Fleet Week because it was cut due to the sequester <laughs> um, budget cuts in D.C. But this year we do have a limited Fleet Week back in New York. So welcome to um, all our servicemen and women who are here in New York enjoying what will be a rainy Memorial Day weekend. But as always, we thank you for your service. It's also National Museum Day, which brings us into our conversation with our second guest, where we'll be talking about the 9-11 Museum that just opened. It's World Goth Day. Um, I'm not wearing anything particularly black, so I'm not celebrating that in any way, shape, or form. But shout out to those of you who are. And as we uh, promote in um, for the end of the show, Michael Fragan will be joining us to talk about EMS Week. It's National EMS Week, and we will be talking about that. But meanwhile, we have Ika Cohn on the phone. We are on the phone with her from Tel Aviv. She is the proprietor of Ica Chocolate. Ica, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Hi, how are you? Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Well, welcome to That's Life, and we're very excited to have you on because, I mean, obviously, mazal tov to you on winning this wonderful, wonderful award. Um, I want to speak to you about that, but before we even talk about the process and the award and how it felt to win, I need to understand what made you pair chocolate with za'atar. Ah, it's a very, very easy question, a very good one. Um, I would never think about it, but uh, a year before, the judge of the same um, uh, competition was here, and he tested some of the flavors of the original flavors of Israel. And they were really, they couldn't understand why don't we use the same products, the same materials that we have here. And they told me, please make Zata. And... I made up my mind that in the next competition, I'm going to give them what they want. Uh, it was a nice challenge, and it was a big surprise that they loved it so much. I kind of hope they're going to like it, but I, ne- I never assumed it's going to be that uh, successful. Right. Well, I would I would say that it certainly was successful as you won this um, international chocolate competition. You came in gold? I came in gold in the European round. I still have to go on the international on October. Um, each country or each um, region has its own competition. Uh, since there wasn't this year in Israel, I had to go through uh, European, which is uh, one of the toughest, because as you know, European are really good with making chocolate. Right. Who does that? Uh, in- who does the European? Not to interrupt, but just to take a step back, the European competition includes France. It includes Italy. It includes the Swiss. 
It's with any uh, country in, in the west or east of, um, of um, Europe, but some countries like Germany decided this year to, to, to have their own uh, competition. So it's either you join, if your country is um, competing on itself, then you didn't go on the European, like this year with Germany. Interesting, interesting. So you were competing against all of them, and this would... Um, and this was therefore what will be a more difficult competition, or was a more difficult difficult competition than the one coming up in October. Um, the one coming in October is actually um, com- I'm going to compete with all the winners, whether it's medal, bronze, or silver medals. But um, whoever won this year on the the region uh, or, or country. Uh, competition I'm going to compete, so it's going to be very, very difficult. I'm going to compete the best of the best. Wow. That seems very exciting. Do you think that za'atar is a an intrinsically Israeli spice, or it's more just Mediterranean in general? I think Mediterranean. I was very surprised when the Italian, which for me are really Mediterranean for themselves, um, they never heard about it, and that was part of the interest they had in, in this Berlin, because they never heard about Zata, and we know, you know, pizza, Italian, organ, or organa, which are very, very similar, right. but still they were very excited about it. So I guess it's, it is Mediterranean, maybe Arabic, maybe, um, but here in Israel we use it quite a lot, so not Israeli, I would say, but... I I would imagine, though, that um, even when you told people who are your fans who come into the store all of the time that you were pairing za'atar and chocolate, they probably looked at you askance. They probably looked at you like, really, do you think? I think that um, the first time I thought about making it, I said, okay, it's very interesting. And when I tested it for the first time, I said, wow, that's that's amazing how it's really harmonic together. I think that my, my um, I sometimes call it audience because I come from radio also, but my clients, my, my customers, um, you can find either the one of the really classic and they would give, a, they would look at, give me this look and what the hell was in your mind when you thought about it. And the other one, I'm really curious about it. And these are the people that um, keep coming and asking me to do more interesting things. Mm. Uh, so it, it really depends on who customers, who, who my customers are in the store at the moment. Is the um, the chocolate that you paired it with? Was it a truffle? Was it semi-sweet? Was it bittersweet? Because I want you to know what I have set up right now in the studio. And as somebody who has a background in radio, as I know you do, which we'll talk about in a minute, you can imagine what the setup in the studio looks like. We have the board, we have this, you know, we have mics, etc. Um, and right now I have a bottle of za'atar, <laughs> a Hershey bar, and uh, some sea salt because I, I I do not want to insult you in a million years and say that your chocolate is akin to Hershey's. I I, I imagine that I'm. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> I imagine that that's probably pretty insulting. But here, but here in the states, this is you know a commonplace chocolate. Everyone knows what Hershey's tastes like. Um, so if I took a piece of Hershey's chocolate right now, even though I'm sure this is making your skin crawl, if I took a piece of Hershey chocolate right now and I put za'atar on it, am I going to... No, this is not the same. <laughs> what we used was a fresh za'atar. We took the leaves oh. of the, and we infused it with a cream. 
uh, overnight. And then we added both milk and dark chocolate to get a balance. And then at the top of it, we put some salt. So this is really a combination that it took us some taste, some uh, experience to understand what we want to, to get, what the flavors we want out. So I don't think you're going to have the same taste, but you <laughs> might have something else that might win. <laughs> no. So, so, you basi- so you basically would not recommend that I try this right now. <laughs> I, I think you should try and let me know how it works. <laughs> Maybe I'm working too hard and it's so easy. Right. If you just melt a Hershey bar and take some uh, yeah. Pereg Zatar and spill it all together, you might just come up with the same thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I highly doubt it. But Ika Cohn joins us from Tel Aviv. She's the proprietor of Ika Chocolate that literally just won this uh, European competition for the best chocolate, and she will be competing on the international level come October. The um, What made you, by the way, decide that you need a little bit of milk and a little bit of bit of sweet chocolate in order to balance this correctly it's all about try, testing trying um i tested it with, i tested it with um, uh, milk chocolate and then with dark chocolate and i decided that the dark um it's too it's too strong for the zata and the milk is really nice but too sweet so i realized a combination between the two of them gave me the exact um, effect on the data and still bitter enough. Well, I, I want you to know I just tried it, and, and my my engineer, Avrami, is staring at me like, so, no. Um, it wasn't, it definitely wasn't bad, and I happen to be a huge Zatar lover, but the one thing that I should have done differently, which, of course, as you just said, it's trial and error, so I get to keep doing this over and over again, um, is I should have added more salt. There definitely, you are obviously very good at your craft and yes the milk the milk chocolate is way too sweet to accompany the zatar yeah definitely um i think that only when you try combination you understand what is right you have and i'm keep saying that to everyone um being a chocolatier is testing is trying is is making a test making an experience and with that you learned what you like and I tested it, I tried, and I've made up my mind that in this combination, this is the right way. Um, maybe for you it would be different. Are there there co- is no right. There is no right or wrong. There is what is good for us, for each of us. Are there combinations that you tried um, in the past in the store that you thought would be a hit and really fell flat? Sorry? Are there combinations that you tried with the chocolate, the different pairings mm-hmm. that you tried and you thought would be successful in the store but weren't well received by, by your audience? Um, sometimes very, very classic. I normally, um, you know, I had basilic and uh, I have um, a tea, but you hardly can find any really uh, challenging, like this one, like the Zata, uh, flavors in my store. So normally, um, people kind of like it. Um, I think that the data was the first one that was challenging, really, the audience, the, the customers, and um, it was a good, a good one. But in the same way, it could be something that people would say, "Well, you know, this is not for me." Um, so because in classic, it's, it's easier to to remain in the in the main uh, flavors of everyone. So now the answer is uh, up to now, no. <laughs> the, um, 
your your bio your bio on the website does discuss the fact that you um, were a sound technician for Galit Sahal after your military service. And while it seems that you were in the company of people who really loved what you that what they did and felt the passion for radio, which is something I appreciate, that passion never took you. How did you how did you transition? Because that's a real career shift. How did you transition between radio and chocolate? I was very lucky at my 20s to do whatever I want, to just follow my heart. And um, using the radio just as uh, provide uh, my salary. Um, I, I want to learn to, I did my degree in marine science because this is another passion of me, of mine. And um, uh, after, after I finished it, I went to Australia. And when I got to Australia, I realized that instead of, you know, go and continue studying uh, marine biology, I actually really, really, my heart goes after every chocolate I found. So instead of telling everyone, you have to do this, you have to go travel this track, you have to go travel this mountain, I was, you have to try this chocolate. Really, it's really good. So I realized my heart goes after chocolate. It's, um, this is what I love. This is what I want to do. So I gave it a chance. I never thought it's going to be a real career, but it became one. I would say that that's true about a lot of people who start something as a hobby and then have the opportunity to turn it into a career. It's a completely different kind of um, passion that then drives you because you already love what you do even before you're doing it professionally. It is true, but then when you when you run a business, you have to remember that making chocolate is just one thing. When you run a business, you have to do so many other things, and and your passion becomes really, really small part of what you're doing. Mm. Very, this very true. This is the true. other side of the uh, right. following your career idea. Right. Yeah. While you're while you're busy making chocolate and doing it so well, you still have bills to pay. That is always the case. You have a thousand of things that you are not good at. <laughs> I trust me. I understand where you're coming from. Ika Cohn from Ika <laughs> Chocolates in Tel Aviv. Kola Kavot to you, Mazalto. Thank you so much for joining me on the air, and I look forward to hearing from you in October. Please do. Please do. And when you come to Israel, um, I wouldn't think you'd miss you. Right? Uh, uh, my I'm pleasure. I'm coming you. in August. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. I look forward to meeting you then. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you for having me. My pleasure, Koltov. Ciao. Bye-bye. You're listening to That's Life here on the Nahum Siegel Network. And while this is going to be a slightly difficult transition to make, we're going to pivot a little bit and, and uh, put away the chocolate and have what is a much more serious and pointed conversation with Zahava Farbman, who joins us on the air Right now, Zahava Farbman is the Associate Director for High Liveline Crisis Intervention Trava, Trauma and Bereavement Department. She is a licensed social worker, and she is also a mental health responder for Hatzal in the Five Towns and for Akwe, and she's a consultant for crisis and bereavement with Achiezer. And I invited, I invited Zahava on the air today because we have so much to talk about in, in, in regards to the 9-11 Museum that just recently opened and the controversy that has surrounded it. Good morning, Zahava. I don't hear Zahava. Good morning, Zahava. Good morning, Marianne. How are you? I am well. Good. How are you? I'm happy you're there. <laughs> We're here. We're here. Um, so thank you for joining me. You know, just this morning, you and I touched base last night, and we talked about um, a couple of different things. But just last night, uh, just this morning, I'm sorry, there was an article from the uh, in the Daily News 
the New York Daily News, in which they um, family members of people, who, uh, family members who lost loved ones in 9/11, furiously, and I, I, it's totally obviously not a criticism, are furiously slamming the museum officials. Um, for the 9-11 Museum that just opened here in downtown Manhattan. And actually, the title of the article is You Should All Be Ashamed of Yourselves. Sister of Dead 9-11 Responder Slams Museum Officials for Hosting Cocktail Parties. Is she out of line? She is not out of line for how she is feeling. Um, you know, there is no right or wrong way to mourn, Miriam. There are countless, countless, I call it the emotional smorgasbord, reactions, <laughs> um, ways people can think, can feel, can cope and react to the loss of a loved one. Um, and every reaction is right. As long as a person is functioning, you know, getting up in the morning, getting dressed, going to work, doing whatever they have to do, whatever they need to do to get through their morning process is fine. Uh, my favorite line in my work comes from Victor Frankl, who we know is a famous psychologist because he himself went through Auschwitz. Right. And he said an abnormal reaction to an abnormal situation is totally normal. Mm. So I, I think that works here. You know, for some people, making a museum, you know, even possibly a gift shop, you know, is the way to mourn, the way to react, the way to cope. Whereas other people, like we see from this article that you're quoting, you know, could not even fathom right. um, a museum, a gift shop. You know, I heard on 1010 Wins yesterday also when they were discussing this controversy, they interviewed one of the 9-11 responders who was in the building. Um, and he said, I can never imagine going to the museum because I was there. I was in the building. What do I need to go and see it again? Mm, right. And that's his coping mechanism, whereas others, you know, may go to the museum repeatedly, almost obsessively, because that's their connection to the tragedy, to what happened. So I really don't think there's any right or wrong answer here. Wow, that is an excellent, excellent point. And specifically talking about how we mourn, it is very personal. It is very individual. There is no... Uh, cookie cutter answer to everything is this is is this sister's and uh, sorry and I would I would add that this sister's reaction is going to be shared by numerous people who do get up in the morning and who do live productive lives and did lose people in 9-11 lost family members in 9-11 and yet still this is going to be her reaction correct like I said I'm just going to you know just repeat, so much of my, my work is validating, just validating people's reactions, people's responses. I get numerous calls daily from teachers, from parents, you know, from siblings. You know, my child, whether it's an adult child or a young child, is reacting in this and this way. Is that okay? Mm. Um, and the answer nine times out of ten is it is okay because, like I said, as long as they're functioning normally, whatever a person needs to do to get through um, a morning process is fine. And I might add, however long it takes, you know, for some right. people, you know, after the year of mourning, they're done, they're finished on with their life, you know, yeah. and for some people, like we see 12 years later from this sister, you know, who you're quoting, she still, she, she still can't get, you know, get past it. And there's no really getting past it. It's learning to live with it, learning to live with a new normal, with a new reality. And for each person, it's a very personal and individual process. And I'm sure there is no two people for whom that process and the way they react is the same. It's funny that you that you um, that you mentioned the term new normal because it's it's something that I use personally when when I talk about shifts in my life or or things that I now have to recognize that this is the way it is going forward. And we we often joke 
or about something that is a sensitive topic and then look at the reaction of the crowd and say, oh, too soon? Is it too soon to make a joke about something like this? And while I would never have the chutzpah to make a joke <laughs> about 9-11, nor do I, can I imagine that there would ever be anything funny about joking about 9-11, but is there a, is there a moment where we say maybe the museum opened too soon? Maybe the, maybe the museum should have opened without a gift shop and the gift shop came too soon? Well, I want to respond to your joking, but I'll respond to your question first. Um, for some people, it's too soon. And for some people, you know, it wasn't soon enough. Some people will say, mm. you know, it's 12 years already. How come you couldn't open this, you know, a year later, two years later? There should have been, you know, some type of, of, of establishment opens, you know, on the year anniversary. And some people, you know, it will never be um, enough time. You know, this is something they, they will carry with forever. And again, it's something that every person carries with forever in their own way. It's not getting over it or getting past it, but learning to live with it. Um, and just to respond to your joking comments, because I can say, you know, I know you and I know that's your personality. Right. For some people, you know, that is a coping mechanism, you know, the laughing, the humor, right. whether it's they don't know how to deal with their nerves or because that's how they cope. I'll tell you a quick personal story. The greatest lesson in social work I ever learned was when I was a senior in high school and I went on the trip March of the Living, you know, which is a trip to Poland for a week, all the concentration camps, and then a week in, um, in Israel. And we are at the most emotional moment of the trip. We're walking out of Auschwitz-Birkenau, and there I am, a female, a future social worker, you know, crying, and all I want to do is talk and emote and express, and I come onto the bus, and there are a group of girls sitting around laughing and playing cards. And mm-hmm. I went over to my teacher, who was with us, and I said, hello, like, do they know where we are? Auschwitz-Birkenau, how could they be laughing and playing cards? And she said, everyone reacts differently, and for you, you need to talk, you need to cry. For them, they need to to joke, to laugh, and to distract themselves to get their minds off of it. Um, And I think that's what we're seeing here. You know, for some, a museum is their coping mechanism. And for some, you know, the thought of a museum is sending them back to that moment of tragedy, to that moment of trauma, and possibly even re-traumatizing for some. Wow. Wow. Excellent, excellent point. There's, um, (laughs) it's just, it's funny to me, um, just the, the, the image that I conjure up when I think of someone walking out of the 9-11 museum with a tote bag. And I, I wonder when schools take kids to this museum and schools come in from all over the country and groups come in with children from all over the country to go to the museum, I wonder whether or not they should be allowing kids to go into the gift shop, primarily because... While an adult may get a T-shirt or get something as a true memorial, I don't know that kids can can differentiate that way. I don't know that kids can splice it. And kids in a gift shop, well, it's like kids in a candy shop. Is it, would it be something that we would say is inappropriate for children in a group or in in that kind of a circumstance? So I think you know we would ask the same question about the museum in Auschwitz and the gift shop that they have there. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it's very different, obviously, but I think the same questions were raised. Um, I don't know if it's, you know, up to me to decide, you know, if it's fair or not fair, but I can suggest to teachers to possibly reframe it. And rather than looking at it as a typical gift shop in Disneyland, but to say to the kids maybe, you know, perhaps you would like to um, take home a memory, a tangible object from this very special 
emotional place where something very tragic did happen. And this way you can have something tangible in your room that you can look at and think of the horror of the tragedy that happened to so many people. Mm. You know, rather than make it, okay, gift shop, Disney World, who wants to buy a gift, you know, to kind of reframe it to put it in the context of really what it should be. Interesting. Very interesting idea. You know, wh- one poster that we have up in the studio, as much as things change around here and we have pictures that come up, that come down, we have pictures of Nahum with different dignitaries, etc. There is a poster of downtown Manhattan with uh, the World Trade Center and, and both buildings and the beautiful uh, setting sky, sun going down in the background. And we leave it up here as our own as our own memorial. And it's something that we clearly take to heart and everyone remembers where they were and Nahum was on the other side of the water in Jersey City. And I, is it wrong that I don't feel the need at this point in my life or the desire to even go to the museum? I think, again, I think you, like so many other, um, don't want that tangible reminder. You know, you have your memories, you have your experiences. You know, certainly many of the first responders have their you know, clothes that they wore stuck in the back of the closet, mm. and they don't want to, to face it. You know, they don't want to see it. They don't want to touch it. They just want it living in their hearts and their minds. Um, you know, so many parents, after they lose children, you know, will take down the pictures, you know, will take apart the room. They don't want a tangible reminder, whereas other parents want those pictures up, want to see the face of their children, want to touch, you know, their belongings, their clothes. So I, I think same thing here. You know, many of us, you know, wouldn't want to go to the museum because they don't want to see the reminder. They don't They don't want a physical object. They just want the memories, you know, to stay in their head and in their hearts. And other people are very, you know, tactile, very um, object-oriented and need to, to go, to touch, to see, to smell, to be reminded. Um, you know, I, I, think, I think that, you know, again, everyone has their, their ways, their coping mechanisms, what works best for them. Um, and like I tell kids all the time when I'm in classrooms, just the other day I was in a classroom after a tragedy, and I said to them, you're sitting in class, and if you do 2 plus 2 is 5, your teacher is going to say, no, that's the wrong answer. But when it comes to the way you're thinking, mm. feeling, coping, reacting to a trauma, to a tragedy, to a loss, to a crisis, no one can tell you you're wrong. Validating. So whatever works. Validating. Very, very validating. Zahava Fardman from the High Lifeline Crisis Intervention Trauma and Bereavement Department joins us here on That's Life. She is the associate director of that department. She's also a mental health responder for Hatzalah in the Five Towns in Rockaway and a consultant for crisis and bereavement with Achiezer. There was a surrounding controversy, not just in the opening of the museum itself and with the cocktail party that preceded the opening of the museum, and not only in the gift shop and the T-shirts, but now in this new news that restaurateur Danny Meyer will be opening up an 80-seat restaurant um, on premises that will overlap or at least be on in the same, for lack of a better term, that I can come up with Dalit Amos for in the same general area that um, remains were found from 9-11. Is that pushing it, do you think? In my personal opinion, I, I, uh, I'm still, the jury is still out. I, I don't know how I feel about it. But do you think that that's pushing it in, in terms of how far we should be able to push people's level of, of, um, comfort or understanding? So my personal feelings aside, you know, I would, <laughs> I would, um, I would love to know if there were any 
mental health professionals consulted, mm. you know, in, in these types of plans. Um, but being that it's going to be done, you know what I'm saying, whether we like it, like or, it not, or not, right? Um, I would also suggest reframing it, you know, and I would suggest to families, you know, um, or to people going to see it as a place where they can sit and kind of, you know, have a, have a drink with their loved one in mind. You know what I'm mm, saying? Here, yes. here's to you, my brother. You know, I'm sitting right. here having this cup of wine, you know, wishing you were here with me, mm. um, you know, thinking of you. You know, every, everything can be reframed to a place where um, it works for them. Reframing to me is, you know, a very powerful tool. Um, so, again, you know, personal feelings aside, and, you know, no one asked me my opinion before it was done. <laughs> um, <laughs> But being that it's done, you right. know, I guess let's try to see it in a way where it can work for everybody. That's that's a that's such a great point. That is such a great point. And I mean, for a mental health professional, I wouldn't expect any different. But it's also a very, um, for lack of a better word, it's just a healthy way to approach a situation like this, which is clearly going to be challenging for so many people. There's a part of me, and I have being that we work in Lower Manhattan and. And I am a commuter. I do have the opportunity to watch the Freedom Tower being built. And there's a tremendous amount of pride that I personally feel in watching it go up and watching the, the, the construction workers on harnesses putting in a window and, and the acrobatics, for lack of a better word, that are involved in this kind of production. And when I have the opportunity uh, to drive into Manhattan and see the growing skyline and see the 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 growth and the development of the Freedom Tower, there is that incredible pride and the reminder that New Yorkers are resilient. And so the- I want to tell you what you're saying is a very healthy coping mechanism. And in other words, I tell people all the time, especially older teenagers and adults, you know, be action oriented. Think of something that you can do to channel your emotions, your energies, your passions, your feelings about what happened into something positive. So by you being proud of the workers putting up this freedom tower, I feel like that's what they're doing. You know what I'm saying? They're taking their feelings, they're taking their energies, their passions about what happened, and they're putting up something positive as a memory. Um, and those people who will be opposed to it because, again, that's their reaction, that's their coping mechanism, they don't want to see something tangible, I think we also have to remember that there are some people who are still very angry, mm. you know, and they're, you know, it's going to come out. They, they need to be angry at somebody. So at this point, it's going to be angry, you know, at the museum. Um, right. And I think that's also a coping mechanism, you know, just throw that back into the pot of the emotional smorgasbord. Right. No, that's a really, really interesting point. There's, um, there's always a part of me that's concerned on 9-11 that that day is going to become trivialized. And while, mem- while Memorial... be what? Trivialized. Mm-hmm. And that ultimately... Um, while, while Memorial Day is, is coming up this weekend and it's a time that people remember lost servicemen and women and family members, etc., um, we all still get together for barbecues and Macy's is having a big sale. So there's a part of me that, that worries that 9-11 over time is always, is also going to become trivialized, that we are going to become so numb that it's no, that people won't remember. And so there is a part of me that looks at this article with this with the sister of the responder who died and said, I hear where you're coming from. I don't feel your pain because your pain is yours. But I understand where you're coming from because to her, I guess any any like a little is too much. A little movement in this direction of softening is too much because it's a slippery slope. 
Am, am I making any sense? So, yes, on the one hand, I definitely agree with you. Um, however, I will say that whatever is done, there will be people who will not be happy because let's go back to the mm. first thing I said, and that is that everybody reacts differently. So what's going to work for one person, you know, if this museum is working as a memorial, as a catharsis, as therapy for some people, you know, it's going to make other people angry, re-traumatized, sad, I don't want to see it, I don't want to hear about it, I don't want to know about it. Mm. So I think we just have to kind of do our best. Um, I think also that, you know, America can take a very um, great lesson from Israel. I mean, we could take a lot of great rest- lessons from Israel. But the way that they have set up Yom Hazikaron, right. you know, where it's a national memorial day, they have the, you know, the moments of silence. They, you know, the whole country is in mourning, and they and they go to the cemeteries and they do whatever they do. And it's not the Memorial Day barbecues of America. Um, you know, I think it's therapeutic for everybody. Interesting. Very, very interesting. Zahava Farman again from High Lifeline Crisis Intervention Trauma and Bereavement. Uh, joins us on the air discussing the 9-11 museum that has recently opened here in downtown Manhattan. She's also a mental health responder for Hutzel in the Five Towns in Rockaway, and something that I just want to bring that up for a moment. You must see completely different challenges in a situation like that versus um, something on this kind of a scale that we're talking about in terms of a national um, a national bereavement, a national moment of mourning, a national hit, so to speak. Is there a difference in the way you approach a family who has had a tragedy or a loved one or a family member who has lost a loved one versus something like this on a grander scale? Well, there are absolutely differences. I mean, you know, the way we deal with an individual, the way we deal with a family, and the way we deal with a you know much larger population um, is obviously different, but the basic principles are the same. You know, when I sit with a family um, right after a tragedy, which I did, you know, twice this week already, unfortunately, um, you know, one of the first things I say to them, and there's not many things to say at that Mm. initial moment before even the funeral, but the one thing I will say to them um, is that you are each going to react very differently. Mm. You know, this is a tragedy that the whole family is going to go through together, but each one of you is going to go through it differently. And I actually take them, you know, to, to a, a source in the Torah, and I say to them that, you know, when, when the Jewish nation went through the Red Sea, went through Yamsuf after they came out of Egypt, so how did God split the sea? Did he split it into two, like our picture books, you know, of our youth? No, it actually split into 12. Why? Hmm. Because the whole nation was going to go through the waters together. They were going to get to the other side together. But each tribe had to go through it in their own way, hmm. what works best for them. And I say that to a family, you know, right off, the, off, you know, right, you know, at first, at first moments, um, because I want to, I want to validate for them, and I want to, you know, make sure that they're not comparing, you know, one to the other. Well, I'm crying. How come he's not? Or, right. you know, I need to just stay in my bed all day. How come he's out, you know, riding his bike? Mm. Um, and I say the same thing to the nation at 9/11. You know, what I'm saying for some of you, this museum is it. It's going to be the monument, it's going to be the therapy, it's going to be the catharsis, it's what you need to memorialize your loved one. And for others, you know what, it's going to make you angry, and it's going to make you sad, and it's going to re-traumatize you. And that's okay. And that's okay. And don't compare yourselves one to the other. You know what I'm saying? And we're going to have these articles, you know, you know, attacking each other. But that, that's not the point. You know, if we love and respect each other's differences, you know, in the way that we need to mourn and the way we need to memorialize our loved ones, 
think there'd be, you know, a lot more happy people. <laughs> wow. Well, I think that that is great, great insight. Zahava Farman, thank you so much for joining me again. Zahava is the Associate Director of the High Lifeline Crisis Intervention Trauma and Bereavement Department. She is a, a mental health responder for Hatzalah in the Five Towns in Rockaway. She's a consultant for crisis and bereavement with Achiezer, and she is a repeat guest here at That's Life and always welcomes Ahava. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. Thank you, Mary. Just do me one favor next time and, you know, invite me to talk about something fun. Oh, absolutely. Trust me when Hi. I tell you next time we have you on, it's going to be about the chocolate that I did in the first part of the show. <laughs> Sounds yummy. <laughs> Sounds good. Take care. Thanks, man. You're listening to That's Life here at the Nachum Siegel Network. And my third and final guest for today is Michael Fragan. Not only is Michael a guest here at the Nachum Siegel Network hosting Spin Class, but he is also a member of Hatzalah. I'm pretty sure he's an east side unit, though he lives in the five towns. We'll clarify that in a second. And he is also um, a on the board of Achiezer as well as uh, the government, government relations liaison for Achiezer as well. Good morning, Michael. Good morning, Miriam. Am I right that you're an ES member? That would be correct. That is correct. So Michael is a member here on the east side, though he lives um, on Long Island, and he uh, dances at both chasanas. As you can imagine, there are calls both here on the Lower East Side and um, on Long Island. But specifically, I invited Michael on this morning to talk about National EMS Week, and it is a week that um, is appropriately I don't know if it was timed with the opening of the 9-11 Museum, but it definitely worked out well, where we turn for a second and we thank, uh, also timed well with Memorial Day, we turn for a second and we thank our first responders. Michael, how long have you been on Atsala? Since 1997, so, and I started out as a Queens member. Oh, so you've also, you've been around, you've been, you've been around the block a little bit in terms of where you've been with Hatsala. <laughs> it, it, it's been a long, it's been a long and very rewarding experience. As there are times when um, when it hasn't been as rewarding, whether um, for whatever, whether it's a political reason or a frustrating reason or a call goes bad or you look at yourself and say, maybe this isn't something I should be doing? Well, first and foremost, let me say I'm actually not speaking on behalf of Hatsala. Uh, the only people who speak on behalf of the organization is the uh, executive committee. So I'm not going to go Fair ahead enough. and make any representations on behalf of Hatsala. Itself, I'm just talking about myself and my own experience. Absolutely, fair enough. And uh, I mean, there's, as you grow older, as I said, I started in 1997, and there were different types of responsibilities in my life at the time. There were certainly fewer kids. There were possibly uh, fewer uh, financial burdens, and possibly fewer uh, work burdens at the time. Uh, so there was, there's definitely a phenomenon of, of members coming on and, and taking a lot on themselves, and over time. Uh, it's uh, you slow down a little bit, and that happens to quite a few members. But there's no question that the level of dedication and reward that I feel through helping another Jew or Gentile, or it, it doesn't really matter, uh, is really immeasurable. Um, there's nothing I can say um, that that would possibly describe the difference in my life uh, pre Hatola member and post a fellow member, just the just level of dedication and responsibility that I feel that you have to go ahead and always be ready for a potential emergency. It's something that happens 24-7. There's mm. never a break from it. Yes, there are times that you have to turn your radio off. There are times that there are places that you absolutely can't listen uh, to, to, to a call. And uh, just, you know, my Rosh Hashiva, when I joined Hatola, told me that if you can't go on a call, turn your radio off. Because if you ever have a situation that it's going to be nefesh, 
and you're not going to answer, that's, that's a suffix that there's an avera there. Mm. You should never have. So you show, so really, the, the, from a perspective of a memory, you have to always be ready. You have to always be ready to, to go into action. And if you're not ready, it, you don't, you don't just, we're not on Hotella for, for leisure time and we're not on Hotella for sport. Right. We're always there to, to be ready to go ahead and go into action. That's a great line. We're not in Hatzalah for leisure time, and we're not in Hatzalah for sport. No, and I, I, I mean that wholeheartedly. It is really, it really is a great line. I find that Hatzalah members in general are, are are the first to answer, and I don't mean just literally a call, but first to answer a call, a call to action of some sort. There is that level of preparedness of constantly being ready. I know that. Um, while shockingly enough, Stephen Wallach would not partake in this interview. Um, specifically, shocking. I know, I know. For all those who know him, it is shocking that he would not partake in this interview. Um, but we don't travel anywhere without equipment. We don't go on a plane without, um, you know, whether it's a cuff or a stethoscope or a this or a that. We don't go anywhere without it. And while I would prefer to have more room in my trunk, frankly, I do appreciate the fact that all of this has become a necessity. And more than that, that being on Hatsala or having a husband on Hatsala means that your family is on Hatsala. Oh, there's no question that so much credit goes to the families out there, my family, other families who give up of themselves. And a lot of people think, oh, well, what a great great thing that you get to run out of school or you get, to, <laughs> you get to run out of the Shabbos table or something that might be boring. But I, I will tell the people out there, it's not uh, such a wonderful thing to, to leave your kids to go on a call. Yes, there is adrenaline, there is exhilaration, there is you know something about going on a call and you know, makes you feel good about yourself and good about what you're doing. But on the other hand, it, it does take away, it does suck away time, emotion from other things. And I will say, you know, and since you had just had Zahava on, the emotional toll of, of calls uh, takes, takes a toll over, right. over, over time. And I've been on calls and I've seen over the years everything. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it's very difficult. It's very difficult. Uh, my first year, my first couple months actually, um, you know, I had a SIDS case. Mm. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've, with 9-11, clearly, um, people who have been, uh, fatally, uh, struck with, uh, by, by cars, I mean, all kinds of different accidents and the like. And then there, of course, are people that you know who, you know, Hashem have issues and they have tragedies and, and the like. And, you know, it's very, it's a difficult thing to, to over time, it, it certainly adds up emotionally, and it's very important that members deal with that and deal with that added stress into their lives. So it's not all uh, fun and games. No, it is certainly not all fun and games. And what I think also about Hatzalah, because it is Hevra Hatzalah, it is the word Hevra precedes the word Hatzalah, is that you that as Hatzalah members, you celebrate together and you also mourn together. And when a when a tragedy befalls a family, the entire area, all those units are notified because you may not know each other by name, but you certainly know each other by number. And um, there is that connection. And so when, for example, um, the RL, the Rockway Lawrence area, lost the the beloved member, Mark Davidman, otherwise known as Whitey Davidman, um, the youngest row of Woodmere was packed, not only because Mark was such a 
huge and important member of the Woodmere community, but also because he was such an important member of Hatzalah. And Hatzalah members flooded the shul um, because he was one of them. And so I see that kind of that kind of familial, that kind of brotherly connection between Hatzalah members as well. Uh, there's no question about it. First of all, Mark David was a was a special and unique individual uh, in so many ways, and I don't think uh, I have enough time to go through the ways <laughs> that he was totally selfless and totally dedicated, and not, as you said, not just with Hatzalah, but so many other things involved in the community, uh, with Saka and the like. But uh, yeah, to maintain any type of organization that requires that type of Commitment. You have to maintain a certain amount of esprit de corps, mm. I think is the right word. And you have to make sure that members feel appreciated and that they feel that they, that they're, what they do is important. Right. Uh, it, it's very, very important that the community understand that, you know, there are a lot of, yes, people are, are there is this, uh, kind of passive appreciation that you get every day, and there's right. active appreciation, certainly of the family members or others that you might help directly, but there are, on, a, on, a, on a day-by-day basis, there are so many things that go on behind the scenes that, mm. of course, nobody knows about. And, you know, of course, I can't ever tell people right. Right. unless they know about any call that I go on. Right. I can never, you know, I can maybe talk about in, in very vague terms about something that may have happened, but I can't identify anything. Specifically, I can't see somebody in the street after other people standing there say, hey, you know, uh, how's it going? You can't do that. <laughs> right. You can't, so you can't ever talk about a lot of the things that you do. I would. It's funny that you bring that up because what I think, and I put this down on my list of, of, of points I wanted to touch on with you, is that what one thing that I believe that people do not appreciate about Hatzalah is that while you are not legally bind, bound by HIPAA, you all basically take it upon yourselves to the extent that um, no one should ever be concerned about calling Hatzalah that something's quote-unquote going to get out. It's not the way it works. And I remember recently, not so recently, about a, about a year a year and change ago, a good friend of mine um, basically called me and told me she was hurt that I didn't call and see how she was doing. And I said, I have no idea what you're talking about. And she told me afterwards that, um, you know, Stephen had been on a call with her. And I said, stop. I need you to understand that Hatzala guys do not come home and tell their wives what happened. It's a huge misnomer. I said, and if it's to our detriment that we don't know, then that's life. That's just the, 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 the cost of doing business. They don't go home and share. I, I don't get answers, I, you know, and I, and I know better than to ask, but I think that that's a common misconception. Well, I think people should certainly, um, should certainly understand the importance of confidentiality right. and how, how important it is within the medical profession altogether, but within the emergency. Because, look, as a community, we're, we're kind of one big extended family. Mm-hmm. Uh, no matter where you go, and you talk about it just among the fellow members, but it's really amongst all the from community out there. And you're never more than a couple degrees of separation away from somebody. You can always say the wrong thing that people, certain people shouldn't know. So it's something to be very, very vigilant about in general, uh, not just for our members. I think other people should be cognizant of the way 
sometimes they talk or they might say the wrong thing about certain people's medical conditions. And you should know those have significant ramifications occasionally for people uh, with regard to, you know, illnesses they might have uh, or certain conditions that they might have. And, uh, you know, a lot of times you'll come to a call and certain people will tell you about certain medications they're taking. Uh. Obviously, it connotes something, and but you have to keep that, you know, you don't, we don't talk about that. You don't know. You might know things about certain people that they would probably wish that you didn't know. Right. For sure. For good reason. For sure. For sure. There, by the way, just to, just to, to clarify something, in case I spoke out of turn, um, I was not speaking as a legal expert when I said that Hatsala was not bound by HIPAA. It was my understanding that from a legal point of view, Hatsala is not. But if I am mistaken, I was obviously not representing Hatsala, but it is something that they have morally taken upon themselves regardless. That was. Uh, I believe I believe that Hatsala is bound by HIPAA. We are bound by mandated reporters, uh, meaning that if you see issues of abuse mm. or neglect, you have to report those. Those can be very, very difficult calls to make as well. Right. Because, unfortunately, those kinds of things do happen in our community. Yep. So, you know, one thing just, you know, keep in mind, I mean, Hatala is the largest volunteer ambulance organization in the country, hmm. um, possibly only second to Hatala in Israel as far as being in the world. And it's just really an amazing thing that probably can only pull, be pulled off by a very cohesive dedicated, tight-knit religious community. It's very, you know, as one who kind of studies these things or involved in these types of uh, uh, understanding where kind of government goes and government ends, uh, the, the government could never replicate what Hatzala does. Fascinating. That is, by the way, that's also a great tweet to tweet out. The government could never replicate what Hatzala does. Michael Fragan, thank you so much for joining me. And um, though you are you are not officially representing Hatzala, um, and you are certainly um, not speaking for my husband, because as we know, he wouldn't talk. Um, I do want to thank you and every member of Hatzala for everything that you do for the community. Call a kavod to everyone involved and to the families, and to the families as well. Thanks for joining me, Michael. And particularly the wives. Uh, thank you, Miriam, for the opportunity. <laughs> I, I really do, and you know, nobody speaks for Stephen Wallach. There's yeah, no, 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 no. I mean, that is that is for sure. By the way, that's also a great tweet. Anyway, Michael, thank you so much. Have a good day. You too. You've been listening to That's Life here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Actually, I think we're going to have to pull up the song in the background because of Rummy's giving me those looks when I'm going long. I know, I know, I know. You've been listening to That's Life here on the Nahum Siegel Network. Thank you make, for making us part of your day. Let's go through the lineup for the rest of the day so you know what to expect and what not to miss. By the way, if you hear that in the background, that is Shweki coming up in the background. That is 8 Lear Code trying to lighten the end of the show since it was pretty serious for the last 40 minutes. Um, the live lunch starts just in a couple of minutes with Nahum. That's from 11 to 1. And today at 1 p.m., the stunt show hosted by Daniel Gordon. Daniel is joined by the new coach of the YU Max basketball team, Elliot Steinmetz. And he will perform an end-of-season wrap-up with tennis team coach Ira Miller. And then starting at 2 p.m., it's, throw P- it's Throwback Thursday, encoring Jame the AM from years past. Homeward Bound, encores at 4.30 by the book. Encores with Nahum at 5. Michael Fragan, spin class at 6 p.m. Charlie Burnhout at 7. Tune in all day long. Join Nahum tomorrow morning from 6 to 9. as he hosts Jame and the AM live here on the stream, NahumSiegel.com, 91.1, 90.9, and 91.9 FN. Of course... Naomi and Table for Two tomorrow morning. Naomi's doing a serious meat show. That's how she referred to it to me. Rummy is smiling and nodding. You can't describe it any other way. Do not miss it. By the way, my thanks again 
to everyone at Joy of Kosher for including me in the recent hi- recent issue that highlighted kosher vegetarianism and kosher vegetarians. I know I've thanked them before, but it is worth thanking them again. An updated 2014 schedule is on our website. I leave you with Yaakov Shweki's eight-layer code. It is off his Kolot CD. It is time to dance, folks. Live lunch starts in a few minutes. That's life, everybody. Bye, guys.